Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Hello, my name is Dr. Bernard Scavell, and I'm the current Chief Medical Officer at Genexis. It's an honor for me to be having this podcast with one of Canada's leading scientists, Dr. Catalina Lopez-Correa. With more than 20 years of international experience in both the academic and private sectors, Dr. Catalina Lopez-Correa's deep understanding of genomics and innovation has inspired leaders in science and industry to collaborate towards solving some of the world's greatest challenges. So Catalina, it's a pleasure having you here. Thrilled to have this conversation with you. But tell us, who is Catalina? What are you doing nowadays? And what drives you? First, Bernard and Genexis, thank you for the invitation to participate in this podcast. It's really a pleasure to, to be here with you today. My work now, as, as you mentioned, I'm the Chief Scientific Officer with Genome Canada. And Genome Canada is a funding agency uh, supporting uh, the use, application and implementation of genomics across many different sectors. One of them, and I would say, you know, the largest is in human health with lots of projects and initiatives around precision health, precision medicine, personalized medicine, the way we want to call it. Some of them focusing on pharmacogenomics and some more general, you know, precision medicine and other applications of genomics in the precision medicine arena. I am also the executive director for the Canadian COVID-19 Genomics Network. That is a $40 million initiative focusing in advancing the use of genomics to help us understand and control the COVID pandemic. So basically, we had an initial target of sequencing 150,000 viral genomes and 10,000 human genomes to better understand, well, the behavior of the variants that we now know, of course, you know, it's super relevant with this variants of concern, Delta, Omicron, all of those. So genomics is helping us understand how the virus is mutating, how the virus is spreading and distributed uh, around the world. So those, I will say, um, my work with Genome Canada on now a mission-driven approach, which is basically using genomics to help us solve global challenges like we're doing with COVID-19, and we will be launching new initiatives next year. So that's one part of my job, and the other one is really focusing on, on the COVID-19. Fantastic. Well, first, thank you for all what you're doing for, for all of us in Canada. And uh, you know how to uh, keep yourself busy, I can tell. Now that you're bringing up COVID and the current situation that we are living globally, what are your thoughts, Catalina, in order to start jumping into the Christian medicine field, personalized medicine field? What are your thoughts around COVID-19 and the role that genomic medicine is, is, has and is currently playing facing the pandemic? Specifically, do you think to some extent COVID-19 pandemic has empowered or at least generate awareness around the benefits of having a genomic medicine strategy publicly, privately, globally, now why it makes sense? Yes, well, absolutely. And, and you know, Bernard, I am saying now in different, uh, you know, podcast interviews and different uh, media that actually the COVID-19 pandemic is really taking genomics out of the lab. So it's, it's really completely creating a global awareness of the power of genomics. 
And it's impressive because now, you know, I saw an interview the other day with a CBC reporter that was asking people in the street, what is the new word that you learned during this pandemic? What, what is the, you know, word that you didn't really know about? And several people were mentioning genomic because now you see, we talk about genomic surveillance. We need to sequence this virus to understand where this Omicron variant is located. Is the Omicron variant in Canada or not? And the only way we can know really for sure is by doing genomics or sequencing this virus. So again, genomics is really now, I will say, the power of science and technology and the power of genomics has been really highlighted. And it's really at another level now with the pandemic. We understand the power. We understand how this is helping us. Genomics, not just with the sequencing, but also the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines that we have are all based in lab work, scientific work on our genome and our understanding of the RNA, DNA. So it's a unique opportunity we have as a community and as a, a scientist and even as politicians to bring that knowledge we have in genomics and bring that experience we have with COVID-19 to apply it in many other sectors. Fascinating. And a side note, by the way, now that you were talking about RNA vaccines, as you know, one of the instrumental persons that helped us actually start creating these vaccines was a scientist from UBC. That, by the way, Pierre Coulis is also one of the founders of Genexus. So yeah, you're right. I mean, somehow during the pandemic, we have seen the power of genomics, specifically when a reactive approach. We've seen and we showcased some way how an early sequencing of the virus has helped and is currently helping to control the spreading as much as we can and even start customizing the vaccines and things that you just said that it's fascinating. I think it's also important to start discussing with the what if and in instance, as you know, precision medicine, personalized medicine, that within personalized medicine, we have genomic medicine. Yes, it, it can be reactive, as we have seen, but also can be preventive and even predictive, right? And genomics can play a crucial role on how we can predict and hence establish a specific prevention or preventative strategies can be either for a pandemic or just for avoid diseases or prevent or diminish the risk of having, let's say, an adverse rock reaction. One of the most well-known tools from the predictive standpoint of precision medicine is indeed pharmacogenomics. As you well know, and as a global KOL in the topic, in fact, PGX pharmacogenomics is currently gaining a lot of traction globally speaking. But let's be candid here and fully transparent. PGX also is not there yet in terms of implementing into point of care. Many people, including myself, believe that for some reasons, the way pharmacogenomic came was, you know, this proposition, this disruptive proposition of now we have this new tool from the genomic, coming from the genomic medicine side that will dramatically change the way we're prescribing. So bye-bye to adverse drug reactions. We're going to be talking about effectiveness of 100%. Everything's going to be great. And we know that's not the case. We know that it's just another piece of the puzzle. So as a clinician as well, as a physician, as a trained physician as well, Katarina, what are your thoughts in terms of, of pharmacogenomics specifically? And how do you think is that it would be the easiest, seamless way to bring pharmacogenomics closer to the clinician, hence to the patient's benefit? Yes, uh, Bernard, this is this is a really good question. And then let me start maybe a little bit uh, from where you started your question, which is precision medicine and genomics and genomic medicine in general. And just to say that in the last 20 years with Genome Canada, we have been supporting in Canada projects that are using genomics to help us prevent, to help us diagnose diseases, better diagnose, more precise diagnostic, to help us guide the treatment of different diseases, and to help us also on the prognosis. So basically, genomics 
economics can help you in the whole health care continuum from prevention to diagnosis to treatment to prognosis. Now, if we focus more on the treatment, which is the area of pharmacogenomics, I have to say that, you know, we have been going through a journey. And on that, I, I recall here when I started to work with the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly in 2005. In 2005, we were just completing the Human Genome Project. We, you know, we had all the splash about genomics. Some companies around the world, like GSK, were investing heavily in genomic profiling. But some companies, as Lilly and many others, were still very, very shy and very nervous about these new technologies. This new technology because they were scared that these will fragment their market. That instead of having the blockbuster that you sell to everybody one drug fits you know all you will have to fragment your market and think that this drug is only for this patient so in terms of uh, revenue that of course could be a problem so 2005 that was a, a bit of a challenge but even in the three years i was with eli Lilly, i saw a complete change inside the company and how they developed drugs. They went from being scared and nervous about genomics and pharmacogenomics to fully embracing genomics and pharmacogenomics. So they were actually added as a mandatory step in the drug development process to have a biomarker. And in many cases, that biomarker was a genomic marker or a pharmacogenomics uh, marker. So again, we are moving along with pharmacogenomics and we are also as part of Genome Canada supporting the implementation of projects on pharmacogenomic uh, projects in different provinces and some of the challenges to what you uh, were mentioning some of the challenges we're seeing are really around the need for standards and also the need to have best practices not just at a Canadian level but at a global level and, and I would say also the aspect of data sharing and I will I will make here a little bit of an analogy with the challenges we're facing with SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 genomic initiatives and genomic surveillance across the world. One of the biggest challenges we had at the beginning is that we didn't have the same protocols, so we could not compare the sequences. And that's one of the challenges we have with pharmacogenomics. We don't have always the same codes. We are not always analyzing the same variants. We're not always analyzing the genomes in the same way. And that's why we cannot always compare results generated in one lab or in one company with results in another lab or in another company. Same uh, on best practices. What we did early on the pandemic for the genomic surveillance of SARS-CoV-2, and now with COVID-19, is that we developed a series of protocols for quality assurance and quality control for the sequences that were generated. And that was a game changer for us. So having these, again, best practices in Canada, and that was actually an international effort because now we have an international database that is called GSET for all the sequences of SARS-CoV-2 that have been generated across the world. There are more than 5 million. Actually, this morning I was looking at the database. They have 5,700,000 sequences submitted. Of course, those are smaller sequences. The virus is small on only 30,000 letters, base pairs, but still is significant. It's a very significant amount of sequences that are available for every single scientist around the world that wants to download it, look at those sequences. And they're all based, you know, on standardized and harmonized 
protocols, quality assurance, quality control standards, and that makes really that, you know, genomic surveillance is now becoming a global tool for tracking and tracing the virus. That's exactly, I think, the same type of initiative and and standards and harmonization that we need to have in pharmacogenomics. And the other piece, of course, data sharing. And maybe some of you have hear some of my complaints about data sharing on Twitter, social media, and also on the news, asking for our labs in Canada to share the data. And we had a lot of challenges and barriers at the beginning of the pandemic, and we still have challenges with data sharing. But for genomics to really have an impact in healthcare, for genomics to really have a global impact, we need to share the data. It is critical. Of course, when we're talking about pharmacogenomics and when we're talking about human genomes, we have to have, it's important to have all the security and privacy protections that are needed. But there are now all kinds of, uh, you know, practices and tools. Genomics England, for instance, is one of the leaders in the world in bringing genomics and pharmacogenomics to the clinic. And they are using the information from the initial 100,000 genes and now from the 5 million genomes they want to sequence, all with the specific objective of implementing and using that information to have better prescription, but more, you know, targeted, as we, as we say, you know, giving the right drug to the right patient at the right dose at the right time by using the genomic information. So targeting in pharmacogenomics. So just to, just to close on all my answer, that is a bit long, but uh, I think we have been advancing a lot, but we need to work together collectively private sector and public sector and government. These three entities, academia, companies, private companies like Genexis, and the government to advance those data standards, harmonization, and the data sharing practice. Fantastic. This is great. I love it. And uh, you're right. I mean, the COVID collaboration, scientific collaboration, I think, at least from my standpoint, is one of the most dynamic I've ever seen or witnessed. And it's incredible how the global community is engaged and uh, collaborating in order to tackle this this global pandemic. So, and that's the need, right? Uh, That's also something that has somehow helped expedite the adoption of this kind of tools. The need, we know patients are suffering and even dying due to this pandemic. And it's, and you're totally right in terms of the standardization, the lack of the standardization and harmonization in terms of the calls that we're doing from the pharmacogenomic standpoint. As you said, there are great initiatives, globally speaking, such as the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Working and Implementation Consortium, the Dutch Pharmacogenomic Working Group, and even, you know, the, the regulatory agencies are trying to do the very best in aiming for a standardized language so that we can all, all speak the same language. But also it's, it's how we deliver this information, right? How you bring this information closer to the provider, to the user, how we can uh, somehow take off the complexity, you know, the behind the scenes complexity of the genomic studies and make it easy to understand and implement into their workflow. Like if you use your physician hat here, Catalina, and imagine that you have a patient how can you tell, how can you talk about pharmacogenomics? And, you know, you don't have most of the time, even though you would love to, you don't have the time. So what are your thoughts in terms of bringing, you know, giving the right place to pharmacogenomics? Don't get me wrong. I'm a full advocate about pharmacogenomics, but it's still at the end of the day, just another piece of the puzzle. So it needs to be somehow embedded with the other normal clinical aspects that we take into account when prescribing, such as drug-drug interaction, liver function, kidney impairment, comorbidities, other diagnoses, and the genetic makeup of the patient as well. What are your thoughts specifically in terms of a value proposition that aims to deliver this kind of solutions in a comprehensive solution? Do you think that's the right step? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about uh, how we're delivering pharmacogenomics and how we should be delivering pharmacogenomics? I can, of course, put here my 
clinician had. And we'll tell you that first, a few points here. First, maybe for new generations is a bit different. But when I study medicine, I learned basically nothing about genomics. I think we, we, we got a class about genetics that was more like Down syndrome, trisomies, big, big, big picture. And, and, and the challenge even now, today, when we talk to uh, medical schools across the country and across the world, they're maybe giving a little bit more uh, information about genomics, but nearly, I mean, not nearly enough to, you know, what uh, medical doctors should know today about genomics. So, so I will say medical doctors are not well equipped in terms of knowledge about genomics and pharmacogenomics when they are starting the practice. So you have a person, a medical doctor, a clinician like me, you don't have the basic knowledge about pharmacogenomics. You have a very limited time to see a patient. You have to, of course, go ahead with your prescription. And you might there somewhere in the back of your mind know that, yeah, there are genetic aspects that will influence how this person respond or not to this medication. But if you don't have the right tools to help you, I think those doctors are completely puzzled and they are totally blocked and, and not able to really advance the implementation of genomics just because, of, again, the lack of time, the lack of knowledge, the lack of tools. So I, I think I totally agree with you that we desperately need tools that help clinicians use pharmacogenomics in a simpler way. So I always make the analogy with um, imaging and MRI or PET scan. You know, if I have a question about one of my patients, I will send them for uh, imaging and I will ask for an MRI or a PET scan or whatever it is. And then I don't need to be a radiologist to be able to read the report the radiologist will send me and say this patient has a tumor and that's potentially suspicion of malignancy or whatever, you know, that the MRI or whatever the PET scan will bring as a result. So same with genomics. We don't need all the doctors to be um, genomic specialists. We don't need them to know, you know, all the details about SNPs and variants and all the variants you can have in the CYP to the six enzyme or whatever it is that influence what you need to prescribe. But you need a simple tool that almost say to the doctor, green light, red light, yes, this patient should receive this medication or this patient has a potential challenge with in the way they will metabolize or potentially this patient will have a severe adverse event from you know taking this medication. So red flag, you should not prescribe this based on the genome of that individual. And ideally, I would say go um, beyond that to, to make some suggestions to the clinician on, you know, what are the options I have? If this patient will have a bad reaction or will not metabolize well this medication, what else can I prescribe? And I, and I think that reporting and those tools should be available for all areas in genomic medicine, because I think one of the biggest roadblocks for clinical implementation of genomics is the fact that in some cases, the reports that are given when we get our genome sequence are so complicated, so long, so focused on the scientific details and not the action that the clinicians, again, with limited knowledge and limited time, they get completely long. And we have seen these in, in the areas of rare diseases when, you know, the, the doctors get a report and they don't really know, is this, is this a mutation I should do something about or not? 
same in cancer, and of course, same in pharmacogenomics. So I think the reporting and the way and, and providing the clinicians again with the tools they need to make the use of pharmacogenomics simply, you know, easier. Uh, more simple and practical for the doctors. I think that, that that's an absolutely great need. Fantastic. Thank you very much for, for your, your input here, Catalina. Another question that I have for you, I'm going to elaborate your global explicitly. I'm going to elaborate all your, all your collaborations. You know that I, I've been following your work for many, many years. And I know that you've been working from Latin America. You've been working somehow with, with Europe. You are one of our leaders here in Canada in terms of genomic space as well. So this is a personal topic that I would like to share with you and hear your thoughts. Personalized medicine is not yet that personalized, right? It's not personalized enough because in order to give, you know, the right medication for the right patient at the right time at the right dose, we need to fully understand that individual, that person, right? And a key factor is your genetic background, your real true genetic background. We know, for instance, I was born and raised in Mexico. So even though that I'm Mexican, the genomic difference between someone from the north part of Mexico and the south part of, of Mexico, it's literally black and white. There's, you know, a lot of stuff ethnicities that we haven't covered yet. Now, translating this into, into Canada, one of the things that I like the most of Canada and makes me proud of being here in Canada is our multicultural society. What are your thoughts specifically speaking? And I'm going to use your term that uh, every, every patient should be, we should be using pharmacogenomics or every patient should have access to pharmacogenomics in order to make it real personalized. What are your thoughts in terms of pharmacogenomics and how pharmacogenomics can help a gathering representative uh, sample of all those subpopulations that we have here in Canada? And even if you allow me to go one step further, B, do you believe that pharmacogenomics can somehow help tackling health disparities? Well, Bernard, I think you're asking the question I'm more passionate about, which is the equity question. <laughs> and, and yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I will say as a, as a general statement that genomics is failing on equity. But well, I can be also a little bit more optimistic and saying that we are now large group of uh, scientists and leaders across the world that are looking at this equity challenge and, and hoping to really put in place initiatives that will help us overcome some of these challenges. But just to elaborate on that, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when we uh, start to, to uh, develop these pharmacogenomics panels that are based on white Caucasian populations that have been sequenced and are in this international data bank, and then we start to apply those panels to prescribe and guide the prescriptions of people in South America with a complete mixed uh, background, like your background, my background. I am from Colombia. And even though, you know, I look white outside, I have a whole mix of genes uh, in my genome. Uh, and who knows, really, for me personally, what will be that combination in terms of, uh, of pharmacogenomics that could uh, work for me? So I think there is a big challenge and a big need for us to diversify the data we have in genomics and really include, we, we have very... Uh, little percentage of black population, for instance, or Indian population, indigenous populations in Canada, or mixed populations in Latin America, Asian populations. So we, we need to really have a representation of the globe and our diversity in this planet should be represented on these data banks to make genomics uh, more accessible to all and to really make genomics more inclusive 
Now, on your point of pharmacogenomics potentially being the tool that could help us drive this equity, I, I totally, you know, I, I totally agree with that. I think we have an opportunity. Uh, pharmacogenomics, I would say, for me, I always present in, in, in the talks I give in Latin America and the presentations and the advice I give to groups. I always say there are three areas where genomics really is the low-hanging fruit where the implementation of genomics is really somewhat straightforward. Pharmacogenomics being the first, rare diseases and cancer. So we have examples on those three where really the use of genomics is somewhat straightforward. And well, there are concrete examples where we, we can implement that into the clinic. And I would say that even more in pharmacogenomics because also of the cost. When you're thinking about potential panels or potential maybe assays that are lower cost for pharmacogenomics as compared to the whole genome that in some cases you have to do for rare diseases or whole genome of the human or the person plus the whole genome of the tumor that you have to do in some cases for cancer patients. The fact that you can, in some cases, use panels and use maybe a more effective way of analyzing and cost-effective, cost-effective way of analyzing the genome makes really pharmacogenomics really an approach that could help break some of these inequities that we're seeing around genomics. And, ju and just to close also on that question, I think, well, the equity challenge is, is not just about uh, the data that is available in data banks, it's also you know, having a much more diverse, even group of scientists, a much more diverse uh, group of clinicians that could deliver those results. So it's equity and diversity at a really much general level that we have to uh, advance in pharmacogenomics and in science and genomics in general to help us just uh, address some of the equity challenges we see around the world. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. And I couldn't agree more, to be to be honest with you. So it's been great, you know, the topics that we have been discussing today and uh, some of the highlights that I have here. Fascinating. So we're talking about, you know, in a nutshell, standardization, accessibility, sustainability, equity, innovation, diversity. Now that I, you know, I highlight those interesting points, if you allow me, I would like to, I will invite you to change your, switch your hat right now and use the chief scientific officer hat for Genome Canada, please. What is the role? What do you think is the go-to action plan? I, I mean, since I arrived here to Canada, I love, you know, following you and following Genome Canada, how you're loving conversations, how you're driving innovation, how you're a full advocate of implementation and helping and, and being that hub, right? When you're, you're always fostering the integration between the industry, the academia, the government. What's next in terms of this topics that I just highlighted? Standardization, accessibility, sustainability, equity, innovation, diversity, we have it discussing specifically around pharmacogenomics and precision prescribing. What, is, what, what are the thoughts in terms of the strategy, talking about the strategy of Genome Canada and what's next? For me, now Genome Canada, well, I move from being the first year with Genome Canada, basically concentrated on the Canadian COVID genomics network. So day and night thinking about genomics and COVID, the SARS-CoV-2, the variants, all that. And I think with, with Canadian COVID Genomics Network, CanCogen, we have done an amazing job to really show the world, show Canada and the world, the power of genomics to help us understand and control this pandemic and to help us inform public health and policy decisions. 
I always say that for me, it was it was almost impossible to think 10 years ago that today in 2021, genomic information was critical to help us make decisions about border closing or travel bans or big, you know, policy with important economic implications like, you know, controlling borders, closing borders. And all these is being done based on the genomic information we're getting from the virus. So again, with CanCogen, we're taking genomics to another level, and that has been an amazing ride for me as a scientist and as a person. Now, uh, as a chief scientific officer for Genome Canada, what I'm hoping to do and what my objective will be uh, for the next year is to take this to the next level and just use this example of this genomics applied to solve this global challenge, the COVID-19 pandemic, and go into another, as we call it, missions. So what we will be doing next year, and we are doing already this year, we're starting, uh, we actually started with uh, CanCogen, with the Canadian COVID Genomics Network, is to moving uh, Genome Canada from a program-based organization that has been for 20 years based mostly on the programs we are advancing to support the application of genomics. We're now moving towards mission-based organization. And I will be the person, of course, with our uh, CEO and the entire team at Genome that will be uh, coordinating the implementation of this mission-based initiative. So for next year, I invite you all to stay tuned and have a look at the next mission we will be launching potentially in April next year. We will be announcing how genomics will be used to tackle another global challenge. Similar to what we did with COVID-19, uh, next year we'll be thinking again about another global challenge. And what is interesting on that is that as part of the work we will be doing around mission-oriented research, that is actually being adopted by other funding agencies across the world. The European Commission is now doing mission-driven research. Also, the Bill and Melinda Gates is doing mission-driven research. So many organizations are, are moving towards this mission-driven research. What we want to do also is to help better coordinate all the efforts around genomics uh, in Canada. And as you mentioned, Bernard, you know, we have a lot of initiatives in government that are trying to advance genomics and the use and application of genomics. We have initiatives also in the private sector, like Genexis and other companies that are working day and night to advance the use and implementation of genomics. And we have all the academic groups across Canada with the different universities that are also looking at advancing the implementation of genomics. But we haven't been that good at integrating, collaborating, and building a cohesive ecosystem that will help us really use genomics to tackle those global challenges. So one of my goals, again, will be working on mission-driven initiatives, but the other goal is to build a much more cohesive ecosystem. So to bring all these groups, all these um, voices, all these leaders together to start thinking about the future and, and the use and implementation of genomics. And we have already started with some of our roundtables that we organized this fall, where we invited stakeholders across the country to participate, to give us their thoughts and ideas to inform our strategy for next year. And we are planning to expand those consultations. So again, my work, I think if it was exciting and quite a ride, I would say with CanCogen, it's going to be even more exciting and another amazing ride with uh, the work we will be doing on missions in 2022. 
So that's a little bit, you know, what I'm up to. And as I always say, this is my work during the day. And that's already, you know, I'm passionate about this and pushing to get, you know, better and faster use of genomics in Canada. And my work during now at night and during the weekends is to taking also genomics to underserved populations, developing countries, emerging economies with a particular interest in Latin America, because of course I am from Colombia and I want to see also the benefits of genomics in our countries in Latin America and Africa. So that's a little bit what I do in some of my free time. It is amazing. Thank you. This is great and exciting, exciting times. Circling back to your comment in terms of the roundtables that Genome Canada recently host, I had the chance of being part of those. It was amazing indeed. I just want to second what you said. It was an amazing dynamic experience. Uh, at least I haven't uh, in my career, I haven't been part of something like that, where you have, as you correctly pointed out, where the different members from the public uh, segment, but also from the industry, from the academy, from the academia, from the clinical standpoint as well, we were all sitting together and discussing how we can continue moving forward in Canada genomic medicine. So that was great. And I will fully endorse and support as much as I can to continue doing something like that. A mission-based strategy, it's, it's an ambitious, brilliant plan. So I'm, I'm happy for this. Thank you for sharing. It's a very interesting mission that you are driving with the rest of the team. I strongly believe Genome Canada is and should continue being one of the pops in terms of bringing the different stakeholders together as, as you have been doing and as you just uh, shared with us based on the uh, roundtables and different uh, the other strategies that you have and will continue doing for the next year. What can we do? What can we do to get in the same speed? What can we do to help? I think this is the time for us in Canada to show the benefits of precision medicine, of genomic medicine, to show the clinical actionability, the clinical utility, the social impact, the cost effectiveness that genomic medicine can bring into the table for this country. I think we've seen that. We all started to witness that with COVID efforts, as you correctly pointed out as well. But what are the takeaways for you, from you, from your position, and mostly as a global KOL and advocate about precision medicine, what are the takeaways that we should take home as a clinician, B, industry, C, academia? Well, the first one I would say is that, you know, we always talk about the genomic revolution and how genomics is going to transform healthcare. Well, the first take home is that this is not in five years or in 10 years. The genomic revolution is now and genomics is transforming healthcare today. So if you're not on the boat of genomics, you better get on this boat or this train because genomics is here to stay and genomics is here to transform how we prescribe and how do we practice medicine. What I will say also uh, a bit of what we say at the roundtables, which is this fall, which is really uh, the need for us to collaborate and work close together with the different stakeholders across the country. Also, I think it's critical for us to be conscious that genomics has great applications in health, but it has also a great potential in other sectors like forestry, agriculture, climate change, environment. And I think learning from those cross-sectorial approaches and learning from the standards, harmonization and data sharing that we can do in all these other sectors, I think will be critical for us in the world to, to help us advance the application and use of, of genomics. 
And I will say too that these interactions between the private sector, the public sector, academics, and government are critical. And some countries that have seen, in particular the UK, I bring again, but they have been driving the agenda and the initiatives around the implementation of genomics in clinical practice. And they are doing in this triangle. And really, these three components are key elements of that strategy in the UK, which is support from the government participation and active participation of the uh, private sector, companies like Genexis and many others, you know, in Canada that are helping drive this agenda, and of course, the contribution of academic groups. So I think that's also critical. And the last point I will make, you know, we talk about genomics being multi-sectorial, but also we need to work these on a multidisciplinary base. And as you mentioned, For us to be, well, you just mentioned Bernard, that for us to be able to implement genomics in the clinic and demonstrate that it's really cost effective, we need to do all the economic studies. And also we need to make sure we understand the social implications, the regulatory aspects, the legal, the ethical. So including all these, as we call it with Genome Canada, we call it GELS or Genomics and Society, but it's really looking at these other multidisciplinary approaches. And I will have to say here that Genome Canada has been one of the leaders in the world in including the GELS research in each of the large-scale projects we are funding. So each of the projects we have will have to look at the economic impact of that project. Is this pharmacogenomics approach, well, is this having an economic impact? What is that economic impact? Can we measure it? What are the regulatory implications? What are the legal implications, ethical implications? So all these multidisciplinary aspects are really critical for us to pave the way for the full implementation of genomics in the clinic. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, Catalina, this has been amazing. I truly enjoy having this conversation and I can continue, you know, going for hours and hours. But before closing this amazing podcast, you are an example to others. Share with us a message. You know, you're a successful person, successful scientist, successful key opinion leader. You're an example. What is your message for those women in science, for those scientists, for those minorities, for the overall new generation? What is, what is the message of a professional, seasoned, successful expert like you? Thanks for this, uh, all, the, all this word, Bernard. Um, I, I don't know about successful, but passionate for sure. <laughs> passionate for sure. So I will say four things for all women in science. And I will not just think about women in science. I will even think about you know, minorities, intersectional groups that have lots of challenges to just pave their ways in the world of science and in the world in general. So the first thing I will say is dream big, dream big. Don't be shy, have big dreams. That's important. And I will never, you know, stop asking young girls, young people to dream big. The second I will say is, is get the right education. For me, you know, it has been critical to get the right education that's helping me pave uh, some of these ways. I would say number three is get a mentor or somebody that help you along your way. And I have been lucky that uh, I have in every one of my stops, you know, when I work in Europe, in Belgium and France and in England, I had always somebody that was guiding me, helping me, showing me the way that I could ask questions. Same when I was in Iceland, in the US, when I came to Canada, and I still today, I have three mentors that I consult often about moves and questions I have. So having a mentor, I think is really something that helps. And the fourth, and I think the most important of all, is believe in yourself. We can all do it. And you have to believe in yourself. 
dream big, get your education, get a mentor, and believe in yourself. Those are my four. I love it. Thank you, Katarina. It's been a pleasure being with you today. I truly enjoy our conversation, and I think we have a lot of takeaways, but mostly we need to go hands-on and start working on this. Thank you, everyone, for sharing with us this conversation. My name is Bernard Esquivel, Chief Medical Officer at Genexis. Thank you uh, to Dr. Catarina Lopez-Correa, Chief Scientific Officer at Genome Canada. To learn more about Genome Canada and Dr. Catarina Lopez-Correa, please visit genomecanada.ca. And to learn more about Genexis, go to genexis.com. Thank you.